Good afternoon. It's, uh, I feel like it's been so long since I've seen y'all. Um, lunch was good. I had a good lunch. Um, I promise you that I won't go to sleep if you don't. Uh, how's that sound? I, I, know that, I know that all of you are probably sitting there and all relaxed and it's just easy to drift off. So um, I, will, I will do my best to keep you engaged. Uh, I want to talk about the subject of authenticity um, or of being real. Um, but before I talk too much about that, y'all know what time of the year it is? Tax time. Y'all have to do taxes yet? Um, tax returns are great, though, right? Really great. Um, <laughs> so I got my tax return back. It's just great. It's wonderful. Um, but I thought just to be cool, like, I would share my tax return. Are you delighted? Whole hundred dollars richer? Well, no one's really excited. I don't hear anybody screaming and yelling or anything. So, how many of you that didn't get these bills believe that these bills are real? <laughs> no one. <laughs> Do I not look rich? <laughs> no, I'm not. So, you were right. Um, these bills... Actually, someone that got one, tell me something you see on these bills or you notice about these bills that is not real. Help me out. Oh, it says this is not a legal tender. Okay, what else? It says for movie use only. All right, what else? All right, strip down the middle isn't real. Okay. Okay, all right. Notice what the treasurer says, movie props. <laughs> and, and I think the secretary is great fat white productions. <laughs> they all have the serious, same serial number too for what it's worth. This is $10,000 of $100 bills that you can get for $10 on Amazon. <laughs> Why didn't y'all think they were real? Even before you saw them, why didn't you think they were real? There you go. Everyone knows I don't have 10,000 disposable dollars. All right? My tax returns were not that great. Why else? When, those of you that got the bills, and you can pass them around to other people, um, and if you want to make sure they come back to you, just let them know if you want to take it home with you. I've got a bunch of those things here, so I don't mind giving some out afterwards. If some of you are interested in them, I'll, I'll hand them out. That's fine. I think I've probably got enough to mostly go around. Um, so if you think about the bill when you actually have it in your hands, it feels a little different. I worked for bank a bank for years, and our tellers could almost instantly feel a counterfeit. 
The best counterfeits were bills that had been washed and reprinted. So it was actually the same paper that was a real bill. So they'd like take a one and they would like they would they would bleach it off and then they'd reprint it with with the new like 100. They take a $1 bill and turn it into a $100 bill. And those were those were the best, but even those our tellers were really good at spotting those. Just being around it, you get to feel what's real, you get to see what's real, and then you get to understand what's not real, what's what's not authentic. So I want to talk a little bit today about being authentic Christians. And to do that, I want to introduce with a little bit of a story. So those of you that know me, I know there are some of you here that don't, so I'm going to give you a little bit of my background. I was born and raised in, in Barnwell, South Carolina, and I lived there for 16 years until 1996 and then, and then moved to Georgia. And I lived in Georgia, like central Georgia, all the way up until November of last year. November of last year, I moved up to kind of the Shenandoah Valley area to a little town in West Virginia called Matthias. And, and I've always been from the South, and I like, like, I like getting out and doing things. I'm a very, a very adventurous person. And I'm sorry, I couldn't help but notice that there's one whole bench here that's completely empty. Is there something wrong with that bench? Is it, is it broken? That's very odd. No one, no one sits on the one bench. All right. So anyway, sorry, I'll move on now. So I move, I move up here and like down in Georgia, you know, I would, I would sometimes we would go out on the lake in the summer and I'd go water skiing and I'd go, you know, kneeboarding and wakeboarding and tubing and loved all that stuff. And, and I already told you that I rode dirt bike. I didn't say I was good, but I did ride it, right? So, so I, I did this kind of stuff. And so when I moved to West Virginia, my thought was, you know, one of the things that I can do now if I have to put up with this horrible winter, one of the things that I can do is just see if I can make it from the top of a really snowy slope to the bottom of a really snowy slope. And I thought that I, I should do this by putting a, a snowboard on my feet. That sounds like a great way of doing it because walking down is fine, but, but sliding down is better, right? And so I'm like, I, I need to go snowboarding. Well, I decided that I was going to go. I had this brilliant idea. I'm smart like this. So I, I decide that since I've never went snowboarding before, the best way to learn is to go for an eight-hour session. All right, those of you that went know where I'm going with this. All right, the best way to learn is to go for a full eight hours, and then surely by the end of eight hours, I'll know what I'm doing. What I didn't think about was that surely by the end of eight hours, my body will be so broken that there will be nothing left to walk away with. So I went, and, and I went down the little baby slopes, because that's what you do when you start. And, and I wasn't good. I wasn't good. Still I'm not, for what it's worth. So I was going down, you know, going down the little slope, and, and I got to the point where I could make it all the way down the slope without falling. I fell a lot of times to get to that point. So, but I'd, get, I'd make it from the top, and I'd get down that thing. And then I'm like, all right, okay, this is good, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I know what, I'm starting to know what I'm doing here. And so I, I got to the point where I could do, I could, I could turn, you know, I could toe turn, I could heel turn, I could, I could heel break, but I wasn't very good at toe stopping. That's just like, because that's when you're, you put your back toward the place that you're going, and you put your front towards the top of the mountain, and then you lean upwards so that you toe stop. And that just doesn't make much sense, because I like to see what I'm stopping into, you know? <laughs> I mean, a tree hurts just as bad either way, but I'd like to see it coming, right? So, so there I am, and I decide that I'm going to go up to a more difficult slope. 
This is because I've, I've learned what I'm doing now. And so I go to a more difficult slope, and this slope was, was more difficult by a fair stretch. And as I, as I was coming down it, you get up a pretty good bit of speed, and especially right towards the end, it's just like, like a lot of speed at the end, and then you get down to the end of it, and that's right where everybody stops to get back on the, the ski lift. And, and so, so the first couple of times that I was going down, and I noticed this, and so I'm like, well, I got I to gotta slow way down. Well, then my buddies were saying, man, here's the thing about snowboarding. It's kind of like biking. You know, when you go slow, it's hard to steer and stuff, but if you can go fast, it's so much easier. <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm doing, so why not listen to the pros, right? So obviously my problem is that I'm not going fast enough. <laughs> so by this time, I'm hurting already. But I was like, you know what? I just need to, I need to pretend like I'm, like I'm as good as these guys are, and I just need to attack it. Full send. So I go up, and, and I get up to the top, and I get out there, and I'm going down this thing, and oh, it's great. It's good, man. I, speed, they were right. Speed's so much better. And, and you can steer, and you don't have to worry about it. The problem that, that they didn't really address with me is how to get rid of the speed when you need to. <laughs> so so I, I knew how to heel stop, and I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just kind of... So for, for those of you that, that have went before, you understand that there's a difference between goofy riders and regular riders, right? And I ride goofy. I don't know why, but that's just what works for me best. And so I'm riding goofy, and so at, to, to heel stop, that means I have to turn left and... And in this particular slope, the people that stood waiting to go up were on the left side. So as I'm looking over there and realizing the amount of speed that I've built up now is monumental, and, and that if I go to the left to stop, I surely will hit someone. So then I started to think, well, the only thing that's left for me now, the only recourse truly, is to toe stop. I mentioned earlier that I'm not good at that. Right? So I said, toe stop it is. So I, I start to go into, into a toe stop, and, and as, I'm, as I'm moving into it, I notice that there's a few stragglers off on the right side. They're off there by themselves. But I thought, you know, all things considered, there's a lot of stragglers here and a few here. Let's go for the few. So as I, as I start to toe stop, I, I'm beginning to think, all right, now the last thing in the world that I want to do, and I was so wrong, but the last thing in the world that I want to do is toe stop so hard that I fall on my face. So I should go a little gentle on the toe stop. Yeah, I know, that was wrong. Should have <laughs> fell on my face. Hooked the back of my board, because I wasn't toe stopping strong enough, flipped up and landed on my head. And... <laughs> Right there. And then when I was done with that, next I landed on my behind. And then when that was finished, finally the snowboard came down. And then I proceeded to just plow snow for a while. And when I stopped, when I finally stopped and dared to open my eyes, I was staring right up at the face of one of the stragglers on the right. I literally was this far from them. And they looked down at me with an amused expression and said, Do you need some help? I said, No, I think I'm good, thanks. So... I laid there for a while, and I, I reminded myself that I'm not a very good snowboarder. See, I was pretending to be the real thing. And I want to talk today about being real, about being authentic, and about pretending to be real, and the difference. Because I think sometimes we get caught up in the pretense of being real. I did finally managed to get up at one point. I didn't think that my legs were going to move, 
But as I continued to move them, I couldn't sit up, truly couldn't sit up. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, probably it's because I'm trying to sit up uphill. So I'm fighting against myself, right? So I kind of grab my legs and start shuffling them around the side. They don't really want to move much. But I move them around to the side and then further down the hill from me. And then I can sit up because I'm sitting up downhill. You know, I have my weight in my favor at this point, right? And, and substantial. So I sit up and I unstrap the things and I take the board off and I hop up. I can barely walk, but I managed to walk. And I went right to the rental store to turn it back. In. It's like, that's it for me. I was almost in my eight hours anyway, for what it's worth. So, so I want to talk about being real. You know, a lot of you guys drive trucks, and, and that's fine. Like, I, I've never maybe totally understood the, the love of, of, I mean, I like trucks, but my car gets like almost 40 miles per gallon, and I haven't met a truck that can do that yet. So give me a truck that can do that, and we'll talk. But anyway, so a lot of you guys maybe drive trucks, and, and what I've heard is that the cool thing with a truck is to go like through a mud hole and then, and then not wash it. Like just leave the mud on it because it's cool if you can go through mud and that's how you show that your truck is tough. So the more mud you can get on it, you know, the better, and then you just wait a while to wash the thing. Maybe don't wash it at all. You know what I saw the other day? They make spray-on mud for trucks. Yeah, that's for the guys that live in the city and can't find a mud hole. They can, they can pretend. They can spray on mud. Now, I say that to say, how real are you? Are you spraying mud on the truck of your spiritual life? Or are you really hitting the mud holes? I'm going to go back to a story, and if you want to turn there, you can. Um, it's... it's well, first of all, before I do that, I want to look at, at what Joshua says about being real. You can turn to the book of Joshua with me for a little bit. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. They say, Now therefore fear the Lord. This is Joshua talking. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice what Joshua says here. He says, choose who you're going to serve, but then be authentic in your service. He says, if you're going to choose to serve the old gods from before the flood or the gods of the Amorite, fine, but do it. Don't pretend who you are or serve God and do it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's saying here, I picked the Lord, but he's telling the people to be authentic in who they're serving. Don't pretend. Don't put on pretense. Now, I think that sometimes because of our background, most of you were raised in probably conservative Mennonite churches. And so because of our background, sometimes we learn really good how to pretend. We learn really well how to come to church on Sunday, how to say the right things, how to do the right things, and then when we're off by ourselves, we can just be whoever we want. Or in our own minds, we can believe what we want. But as long as we just do the right things, as long as we go to church on Sunday, everything's good. That's like spraying mud on a truck. Just pretend it's not real. And I'm afraid that sometimes we get so caught up in that that we, as young people, we grow up in that, and then we kind of forget to ever realize that there's a need for authenticity. And so then we just go on throughout. We start to grow into adults, keeping on being fake. It's just about doing whatever needs to be done to make sure that all the rest of the church, you don't get in trouble or whatever. 
That's not an authentic life. Look, Joshua talks about, in the same passage a little earlier, Joshua talks about someone who wasn't authentic. Let's look at verses 9. Uh, of chapter 24, if you're still there. We'll look at ni verses 9 through 13. It says, actually, we'll, we'll stop before 13. We'll just read a couple verses here. It says, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still, so I delivered you out of his hand. This man, Balaam, is a person today that I would like to talk about. What do you know about Balaam? He had a talking donkey. And honestly, every time that I've ever talked about Balaam and asked people, what do you know about Balaam? That's what they know about Balaam. And that's fine. That's really, I mean, that's kind of the highlight of the story, right? But it's, I almost don't think it is. I want to tell you the story of Balaam, and I want to talk a little bit about it. And I think the talking donkey's all fine and good, but Balaam is a prime example of a person who is being completely fake and pretending to be completely real. So I want to talk about Balaam, and in this I'm going to talk about seven things that fake Christians do. And then I'm going to contrast them with seven things that authentic Christians should do. Right? And don't get me wrong, this list of seven things is not a conclusive list of all things that fake people do, right? It's seven things that I'm taking from this story, okay? I do feel like it covers a lot of territory, but it's probably not fully conclusive. You can find the story of, of Balaam in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. If you want to turn there, you can. We're not going to read this story. I'm going to tell you the story, and if you if you're question any of my details, well, it's found in those three chapters. I promise it's there. Okay. To tell the story of Balaam, we have to rewind just a little bit in Israelite history. So you know about the Israelites, right? You know that they came out of bondage in Egypt, and then they, they came through, and they sent 10 spies up into the land of Israel, and, and uh, 12 spies, rather, and that didn't work out very well, right? They sent 12 spies in, and only two of them come back with a positive report. And because of that, they decide not to, not to do what God wanted them to and invade the land. And so as a result of that, they had 40 years of wandering in the desert. Okay? So 40 years they wandered around in the desert where everyone got to die that was 20 years or older back when, back when they had sent the spies into the land. Except Aaron and Joshua. So, so now, after this 40 years, they have come up, and if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you can feel free to look at this. I'm going to give you kind of a visual reference of the land of Israel for just a little bit, but if you want to look at a map, you can do that, and then you can follow along too. So in your mind's eye, picture the land of Israel. You've got, you know, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Jordan River, then you've got the Dead Sea, and, and down on the east side of the Dead Sea, the side away from the Mediterranean Sea, on the kind of the outside of the land of Canaan, on the east side of the, the, the Dead Sea, you've got... Moab, and then below Moab, you've got Edom. So it's the Edomites and the Moabites. And so the, the nation of Israel is coming now. The Finally, the 40 years are over, and it's time for them to go into the land. And so they go to pass through the land of Edom, and they say to the Edomites, will you, will you let us pass through your land? We're, we're not going to bother you. We're not going to war against you. In fact, we won't even pick your crops. We won't steal your stuff. We just want to take the king's highway and just slip up through there, okay, the main highway through there. Edomites said, nope, no way. They, they actually brought out an army that was forceful enough that the Israelites said, you know what, never mind, we'll go around. And so that's what they did. They went around the outside. Well, 
When they came up to Moab, the Moabites didn't want them to come through either. And so they slid through kind of on the boundary line, the northern boundary line of Moab, which is at the very top of the Dead Sea. Okay? And that's where the Jordan River comes down into the Dead Sea. And on the other side of the Jordan River is a little town called Jericho. Right? You know this story. That's where they cross the Jordan River. They take Jericho. Right? But this is before Jericho. So 40, the 40 years are over. They've come up. They've slid in through there. And they're parked in the plains right next to the Jordan River, but on the east side, outside of the land of Canaan. Now, Balak is the king of the Midianites and Moabites. They, he's the one that they've selected for their king. And he freaks out. He sees this whole army there, and he's like, oh man, it's not good, not good. And he's like, what am I gonna do? These guys are gonna come in, they're gonna take over my whole land, I'm gonna lose Moab. It's just gonna take it all. Interestingly enough, they had already made an agreement with Moab earlier that they wouldn't harm Moab at all. They had absolutely no cause or, or, or idea of doing anything to Moab. They just wanted to slip through to get to the, to the promised land. But Balak's freaking out. He's like, all right, okay, all right. So the one thing that I know about these guys is that they have a supernatural power that guides them. God, right? And so he's like, I need, to, I need to deal with this in a supernatural kind of way. And so his mind instantly went to Balaam because Balaam was a guy that, that when he said something was blessed through God, when he said something was blessed, it got blessed. And when he said something was cursed, it got cursed. And he's like, man, if I could get Balaam, like I could pay him however much. It doesn't matter at this point because we're going to die. So I'll just pay him whatever and get him in here and, and just have him curse these people. All I need him to do is curse them, and then they'll be cursed because that's the way that Balaam works. He's like, I need to go get Balaam. So he sends elders from his land and sends them out to go get Balaam. Now, the problem is, is that we often think, when we think of this story, we think, you know, they just went around, you know, they took a left of the 7-Eleven and found Balaam's house, right? It wasn't that easy. Balaam was actually, the Bible says that Balaam was over near the Euphrates River. That's 500 miles away. They traveled nearly 500 miles to go get Balaam so that he could come back and curse these people. And the elders go over there. They travel all that way over there, and they go to Balaam's house. They're like, man, we need you. We need you to curse these people. And Balaam, Balaam had talked with God. He, he understood the process. He's like, y'all stay the night, and I'll talk with God, and I'll tell you tomorrow. So they stayed the night, and that night Balaam talked with God, and God said, you will not, absolutely not, go curse these people. You will not travel along with them. I don't want you to do it. Made himself very clear to Balaam. So the next morning, Balaam comes back to these men and says, right, look, guys, sorry, it's a no-go. Can't do it. Sends them packing. I have to think, and, and I'm reading into the story a tiny bit here, but I have to think that Balaam gave them some kind of hope that maybe he could be persuaded. Because they go back, and no sooner do they get back to their land, and Balak sends the princes and greater princes, basically is what the King James says. So he sends his very best princes, his very best dignitaries. He's upgraded from elders to princes now. And he sends them back with promises of great riches, and he says, go get me Balaam. So they go back out again. They travel all the way back to Balaam. And, and they, as, as they get to Balaam, they want to ask him again, what to do. Now, I want to think about Balak for a moment 
This is the first point that I want to make, and it doesn't have anything to do with bail, and the rest of them will. But the first point that I want to make is that fake Christians live in fear. Balak didn't have anything to fear, but he was living in fear. Fake Christians live in fear. Authentic Christians know that God doesn't want us to live in fear of everything around us because we can trust in him. So when we know that we can put our trust in God, we don't have to live in fear. So now, Balaam is asked by these princes, they said, will you please come and curse these people for us? Now, now he's got the dignitaries, you know, he's got the, the guys that you have to really scrub the floors for before they come, you know. These are the, the best of the Moabites. And they come in and they say, please, what, you know, what can we do? How much money is it going to take to get you to come curse the Moabites? And he's like, well, he said, I, I can't, I can't do, do anything yet until I go and, and I pray again. Now, God had been exceptionally clear to Balaam the first time. It says he talked with God. Like this isn't kind of like a, you say a prayer and then you think God may have said something to you. This was a direct communication. God said, you cannot do this thing. So Balaam goes back a second time, and that time at night he says, God, can, can, I, can I go curse these people? The exact same thing God had told him not to, right? It's kind of like saying, Mom, can I get a cookie out of the cookie jar? And Mom says, no. And so five minutes later, you're like, Mom, can I please have a cookie out of the cookie jar? Right? She had already said no. Balaam knew when he was going in what God's will was. Notice, though, that Balaam pretends to be so spiritual. He's like, ah, I need to go talk to God about this. And so he goes and he talks to God. And the second time, the second time, God says at night, he says, you may go because basically Balaam had already set his mind up to. He says, you may go, but you can only say the things that I tell you to. You can only say what I tell you to. Now, that leads me to my second point. Fake Christians want to be in control. Balaam here wanted to be in control. He wanted to control his life. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. Fake Christians want to be in control. Authentic Christians accept God's will without continuing to question him. See, Balaam's interest was actually in money and prestige. That's why he wanted to go along. And you don't read that right here, but we find that a little later in the passage when we deal with the angel and the donkey. Balaam's true interest was not in doing God's will. It was in what he could benefit from this. But he did say, I can only say the things that God tells me to. That was what he told him when he went back with him. And so he starts heading back. And it's nearly a 500-mile trip, and he's on his donkey. And this is the part that, this is the story we all know, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So they're walking along on the plain road, just a standard road with fields on either side, and an angel stands in the way of the donkey. Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey can. And so the donkey goes off into the field to go around it. Balaam is furious, and so he beats the donkey. And the donkey gets back on the road. Well, the next time, the way is narrower. There are walls or something on either side that are somewhat in the way. So the way is narrower, and the angel stands in the way, and so the donkey goes to go around. Well, the problem is that there's a wall there, and the donkey, in trying to get around the angel, pinches Balaam's leg between the donkey and the wall, which 
Sounds painful just to think about it because it's not just pinching, but it's kind of scrubbing as you go along, you know? It hurts, doesn't it, right? So Balaam, furious again, and he beats the donkey again. Finally, they get to the place where, where there's this narrow way that's not wide enough for, for two to slip by one another. And the angel stands in the way once again. And the donkey, seeing the angel and knowing that it can't possibly get around the angel, just squats down. And Balaam is once again furious. He's like, I just, mm, I, mm. <laughs> And so he beats the donkey again, a third time. Now, he did this because he wanted to go there and he wanted to get prestige. He wanted to get money. He wanted to get the funds. He wanted the, what he could get out of this trip. Fake Christians, this is number three, fake Christians are selfish. Fake Christians are selfish. I didn't say shellfish. It sounded like I did, but they're selfish. All right. Authentic Christians know that God's will comes before our own personal interest. Now, Balaam has beat this donkey now three times. He's frustrated because his day is not going the way that it wants to, or that he wants it to. And you've probably been in this situation before where things don't just go like you want them to. Right? Which leads me to my fourth point, and that is fake Christians are controlled by their environment. Fake Christians are controlled by their environment. Authentic Christians refuse to let the struggles and frustrations of their daily life keep them from focusing on God. I have a personal illustration here, so we're going to dive away from the Balaam story for a little bit, and we're going to talk about me for a little bit. And it's, 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 most of my stories are all about me being an idiot, so here we go. Um, so anyway, when we, last year, when we were looking about moving up to West Virginia, so we moved to West Virginia to help kind of support my mother-in-law through a tough physical time for her, and there were some other things that went into it, but when my wife and I were talking about it, we're like, there's no possible way that we could, that we could make this move. We own a house We've got, you know, it, we just could, we could list out a hundred things. It's just, it's not possible for this to happen. And even if it did, it would take a lot of time and, and everything. And so we had prayed about it and we had, we're giving it over to God and everything. And, and I'm like, God, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do, but I want, I want to find out. And, and so I'm not a, I'm truly not a huge fan of, of the fleece method that Joshua used and, and I don't, didn't want to just set a fleece. Like, I didn't just want to say, well, God, you need to show me by doing such and such. Because I feel like that's just a little too controlling. You know, that's, that's not the way we should treat God. We should work with God. And so as I'm, as I'm driving along to work one day, I'm praying. I'm like, God, I, I would love to have a sign. I would love to just have something just where, where I would know what you want us to do. You know? And, and God's basically in my head I hear, and it's not really a voice, but I just like it sticks in my head. There's like a flat tire before the end of the week. I'm like, what? Yeah, that's right. You heard me. A flat tire before the end of the week. And I'm like, God, that, uh, okay. All right. <laughs> so I'm like, I so saw, I drove home that day and I went into Dorcas and I was like, man, how do I even, well, I don't talk about this. This is weird. So I go into Dorcas. I'm like, you know, I was, I was praying today and like, I don't know, I feel like if we're supposed to keep moving towards this move, keep thinking about this move, that we're going to have a flat tire before the end of the week. And she looked at me like, what? She's, 
see, now I'm going to be stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire. That's what she said, you know, and she was just kind of, she was laughing about it. And I'm like, no, I, hopefully it's not you, <laughs> you know. Hopefully if we have a flat tire, it's me. That was on a Wednesday. Two days, Thursday, Friday, is plenty of time for me to forget about it, right? So I have, Thursday and Friday are going along, and, and life is going fine, and there are no flat tires. And so Saturday I go out. It's an it's a August day. It was hot. Georgia heat outside, and I kind of like the heat, but you know, when you're really working and sweating in the heat, it can get frustrating. So I have this old snapper mower. It's got a pull start engine on the thing. It's a riding mower, but it's got a pull start engine. And so I'm out there with this mower, and I'm trying to crank it out. For some reason, this thing does not want to crank. It's just, it normally cranks up like one or two pulls, and boom, it's up and going. But not today. Oh, no, not today. So I'm sitting there, boom, boom, and nothing's happening. I'm getting frustrated, and I've got a dog that, that likes kind of engines. Like, anytime there's an engine running, she wants to kind of bark and carry on, right? And so she comes up, and she's yipping. I'm like, Inca, that's her name. I'm like, Inca, hush it. I'm cranking it up. Stop it, dog. And so I'm getting frustrated at the dog, and I'm trying to crank this mower up, and it's just the day's not going the way that I wanted it to. I'm trying to crank, trying to crank. And finally, she comes over and bites the back tire and bites a hole straight in the thing. <laughs> like, she's nipped at tires before, but she's never bit a hole in a tire. And so, trust me, at this point, I'm beyond frustrated. I'm not talking to God about anything. I'm chasing the dog trying to kick that girl. Like, I'm like, ha! Get, get, get! You know, so I'm chasing her back. And, and she finally goes back into her little shed, and I'm like, oh, so frustrating. So now this thing, so now I pull the spark plug out, and it was flooded, so I dry the spark plug off and bit it back in. Cranks right up that time, of course. And so then I, well, now what am I going to do? I, I got a flat tire. I can't mow with a flat tire. Well, I've got slime. Hey, y'all know about slime? Slime's great for flat tires. So I pull the little knobby off the tire, and I put the slime pump down in there, and I pump it, pump slime in it. And, but then my little air compressor wouldn't put enough air in it to do anything because the bead had done popped off and so I was like all right so I got to drive up to the shop my dad has a shop next door so I get on the mower and I'm like hanging off one side of the mower right driving because I'm trying to get all the weight off of that flat tire you know and and I, I'm probably about as heavy as the whole mower so you know I'm it's, I'm doing a pretty good job of it and so I get up to the shop and I park it there and I'm like, all right okay I can fix this so I get up there and I'm like this is holding the tire and it's still I can't get the thing it's not it's not the bead won't catch, and it's just leaking air through. And uh, So my dad shows up, and I'm like, good, all right, great. So my dad's like, all right, I'll pump air. You, you push the tire back into the bead. So I did, and sure enough, it catches, and then the tire starts to fill up. And oh, yes. And then I hear it's and I'm like, oh, no. So I'm like, all right, well, it's not fixed. But the hole was on top at the time, so I'm like, all right, I just need to rotate it down so that slime can fill into the hole because that's really what it does anyway, right? So hey, this is great. Slime's good stuff. So then I put some more air in it and I'm, it's just dripping slime out. I'm like, well, the hole's not that big. Surely the slime could work. And so I'm like, all right, it just needs a bit more pressure for the slime to really fill down into the hole. Just, that's all it needs. So see, I told you I'm smart. So I, so I sit there and I put a little more air in and all of a sudden, Boom, the tire just 
blows out of the slit that the dog had created, and I get slime everywhere from here down to my toes. Like my whole pants are green with slime. And this slime, this slime is not your average slime. It just goes right through material. Like it doesn't stop on the outside. Like I felt like I had bathed in grease. It was everywhere, and I'm sitting there like, oh no. And I was, oh, I was so frustrated, and I was just ah. And my circumstances had completely taken control of me at that point. I had no vision except for right there. because ah. And so I hop on the mower. I'm like, well, I can't mow today. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I got no tire. That grass is just going to keep growing. So I hop on the mower, and I'm frustrated, and I put it in gear, and I start driving down to the house, and flop, 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 tires flop. And I remember as I'm driving down to the house, like the breeze feels good, and it kind of brings my senses back. And I was like, I look up at the sky, and I'm like, God, what are you trying to tell me? And then it hit me. And I really think that it took all that to get through my thick skull. You see, we get caught up sometimes so much in the circumstances around us that we can't see the things that God wants us to. And that's exactly what was happening with Balaam. He was so caught up in the circumstances of what was happening with his donkey being stubborn that he couldn't see what God was really trying to tell him. So Balaam here, I'm switching back from my story. My story actually ended okay. That was pretty much the end of it. And that took us on the next step forward. And step by step, God made a way and we moved up. So anyway, Balaam now is, is on his donkey that's kneeling on the ground. And he's beat her again. And, and God gives the donkey a voice. And she says, why are you beating me? Why did you beat me these three times? And Balaam says, man, let me tell you what. Mm, if I had a sword right now, I would cut your head off. And the donkey's like, but, but haven't I, like you've had me my whole life. Haven't I been faithful to you? Have I ever behaved like this before? And Balaam says, well, actually, no. And then Balaam can see the angel. And the angel chose Balaam out because the angel and God knew Balaam's true purpose for going. He was going for selfish reasons. So, sorry, I need to flip my paper over here. So Balaam then, after, after God talks to Balaam through the angel, Balaam confesses. He says, God, you're right. And and I want to do what's right. And God again reminds him, he's like, you can only say the things that I tell you to say. Because Balaam had intentions of going over there and kind of doing his own thing. Remember, he was being selfish. So the next thing is that fake Christians aren't willing to admit their mistakes. Fake Christians don't admit their mistakes. If you want to see a prime example of this, the only difference between Saul and David primarily is that one was willing to admit he made a mistake, the other was not. Look at Saul's life. Every time he messed up, he blamed it on someone else. And when David messed up, he, he took the blame for it. Now, I realize there are other differences, but that's the primary difference of their relationship with God. Fake Christians aren't willing to admit their mistakes. Instead, they blame it on others. Authentic Christians accept responsibility, they confess, and they make it right. So Balaam sees the angel. The angel says, your ways are perverse, and Balaam repents and actually offers to turn back and go home. But at that point, now God has a further purpose for him. He says, no, you can go on. And so Balaam goes on. Now, this is where we get to the, the funny part of the story, I think. 
if the rest wasn't already funny enough. Um, he goes there, and Balak is like, oh, great, Balaam's here. So he's like, all right, Balaam, come here. We're going to take you. Now, you're going to curse these people, and you do what God wants you to. So we're going to take you to a high place where we make Baal worship. That makes a ton of sense, right? Take him to a Baal worship place so that he can talk to God. Okay, uh, so they go to this Baal spot, which is a high place, and they look out, and there they see the people. And, and so Balaam had already said, now I can only say what God tells me to. And so Balak's like, all right, man, here you go. There they are. It's time to curse. So Balaam talks to God, and, and this, God gives him words, but the words are not cursing at all. They're blessing, so he blesses the people. Balak's like, man, man, that's... Mm. That's frustrating. That's not what I brought you all this way for. Like, I promised you riches not to bless them. You went and blessed them. He's like, all right, listen, listen, how about this? How about if we go to a place where we can just see the front of the camp? Like, like, you know, not the whole thing, because maybe if you see the whole thing, you're having issues. But what about if you could just see a piece of them, and then you could kind of curse them, and then it could just, like, spread through, right? Like a disease, right? So he's like, let's just do that. Let's get you where you can just see the front. So they take him to the spot where he can just see the front of the camp. He said, all right, now, here's your chance. I'm like, we'll start small and grow up, right? So let's start small. Just curse this bit. And Balaam goes again, blessing. And Balaam's like, man, mm, this is not what I brought you here for. He's getting frustrated. He's annoyed at Balaam. And so he's like, all right, Balaam, listen. We're going to go up. Those of you that are from the valley, and maybe even some of you from here, have any of you been up to Reddish Knob? Some of you have. Okay, great. All right, so from Reddish Knob, you can see for like miles. Like you can see for, for such a long way. And so Balak was like, let's go up to Reddish Knob. And, and then, then you can see all of it. And then and you can see all of it and everything else. And you can just kind of shoot it out there over them. Just a nice little curse. Just lay it out there. Okay? And so they go up to the high place, the real high place. And Balaam there, not only does Balaam say what God wants him to, but the Bible says that the Spirit, God's Spirit came over Balaam, and he poured out a blessing and the prophecy. He prophesied Jesus coming at that point. And that's fascinating to me. Like, he prophesied a Redeemer. And, and because God's Spirit came over him, and Balak's like, Man, listen, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've tried everything with you. This is clearly not working out for us. And so he says, just go home. So Balaam does. Balaam splits and goes home. And I wish that I could tell you that that's the end of this story. But I want to say, though, that for Balaam here, he was doing what God told him to. Fake Christians, this is my next point, fake Christians only help others when it helps themselves. Fake Christians only help others when it helps themselves. And that kind of goes along with the idea of being selfish, but it takes it even a step further. Authentic Christians bless those around them with the things they say and do. And so here, for once, finally Balaam was doing what God wanted him to. He blessed the people. And that would be fabulous if the story ended there. But do you know that as we go on later on throughout these passages, every time we find Balaam mentioned again in the Bible, he's a bad guy. Every time. In fact, it talks about his death in the book of Joshua when the Israelites went to capture a land. The, Balaam wasn't on the side of the Israelites. He was on the other side, and he got killed, right? And then Revelations talks about Balaam. And you know what Revelation, Revelation gives us a unique insight. You know what Balaam did? 
Balak said, and it's not here in this passage in Joshua, but Revelations tells us about it. Balak said, go home, Balaam. And Balaam said, listen, I'll go home, but let me tell you something. If you really want to win, if you really want to beat these Israelites, you send your Midianite and Moabite women down there and you get them to marry your women and then lead them into idolatry. That's the way that you win. That's how you beat this war. And so that's exactly what Balak did. Balak started sending women down there, and, and the Israelites were camped there for some time, and so they started taking this, these Midianite and Moabite wives, wives, and then they started raising children, and they were getting caught up in idolatry. And in fact, later on, we find that, that there was a huge plague that actually killed off a lot of the Israelites because they had intermingled with the Moabites and Midianites. So after all that, that Balaam had done, he finally takes that one last step to just kind of stab him in the back, which comes down to my final point, and that is that fake Christians put on a false front and hide their sinful attitudes and actions to look good for those around them. Basically, basically it's that fake Christians will put on whatever face they need to, to be convincing. You've known fake people, right? It's the same with fake Christians. You may have even known fake Christians. They say the right thing, they do the right thing, but ultimately they don't live the right way, their heart's not right. Authentic Christians show their true selves at all times. So honestly, to a fake Christian, looking right is more important than having a right heart. And if you can look at yourself and say that it's more important to me what other people think of me and that I look the right way than it is that I'm actually right with God, then you're fake. When Samuel was looking for a replacement for Saul, he was sent to the house of Jesse. And there he finds Jesse's handsome, strapping sons, the older ones. And he's like, oh, they're fabulous guys. And he's like, surely one of these will be a king. And so he starts down the list. And God tells him in that process, he says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So I'm here to tell you that if you're fake, you may succeed in fooling everyone. Everyone. You might, but you won't succeed in fooling God. Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.